Gabby Logan, you're very welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Well, we're trying to keep your spirits up there with that song. I <laughs> uh, know you'd love to be cheering on Gareth Bale and the boys in the final today, but what an adventure they had. Oh, it was incredible. And I, you know, I've, I've worked on the England um, setup. You know, I've been the England reporter for the BBC for the last four major championships. And obviously not in my lifetime have Wales been present at these at these championships or a World Cup. So I uh, never thought the opportunity would ever come to work with Wales. And, and a lot of people said to me, oh, why are you working with England and the Euros? But you can't kind of, you know, just push everybody else out the way and say, ah, at last, uh, my team have arrived. I'm jumping ship now. So I still had to, to trudge along along with, with England and their depressing campaign. And then everything seemed to be so jolly and full of joy and everybody was so happy with Wales. So um, it was it was absolutely brilliant to watch from afar. And then I was told early in the week that had they won that semi-final, I would have been on the final. Oh, no. So I no. was, yeah, I know. So um, obviously it wasn't to be. So instead, uh, it's the men's Wimbledon final for me. We'll talk more about Wales in just a second. But Murph, we did mention at the top of the show that we're attempting to find Ireland's greatest ever non-sports person, sports person. As much as we're a massive fans of Gabby here. I'm not aware of any Irish link. What gives? Well, well, I'll just stop you right there, Owen, because we've done a rigorous background check and our researchers tell us that Gabby has qualified via an absolutely watertight exemption. Yes, of course, I'm talking about that most sacred of Irish experiences. She once met Gay Byrne, the Gable exemption, uh, as it's known. So I've no need really to expand further, but I will, uh, because Gabby, you met Gable after you entered the Rose of Tralee as the Leeds Rose in yes, 1991 and you it, nailed your Irish colours to the master in the Euros this year with the following tweets during Ireland versus Italy hurrah I'm not claiming another nationality but please remember <laughs> I was Leeds Rose in 1991 there is one sixteenth of me that is forever era and soon after the people wondering what the Leeds Rose is are yes. obviously not in any way Irish the Rose, hashtag Rose of Tralee so what do you remember of that famous night in uh, 91 when you took home the, that much sought after title center. Well, um, I just on my A-levels and I was planning to go to Japan that summer because my then boyfriend was an athlete and I was going to go watch the World Athletics Championships in my kind of summer off before university. And um, my best mate at school, her dad owned a plant hire company, um, uh, the Kennys, and uh, he said um, every year he sponsored a girl in the Leeds Rose and he didn't have anybody entered. And what was I doing on Friday evening? So um, <laughs> I borrowed a dress from somebody and I rocked up there and all my best mates at school, we spent most of our time at the Irish Centre. They were all Irish. So I, you know, they, they, I think they thought I was Irish anyway, but we did a few, you know, checks. And obviously I do have um, some Irish heritage. My mum's granddad was from Cork. And so by by that kind of skinny, um, skinniest of links, we so got it. all you in. need, Gabby, all you yes. need. When it turned out, when I got to Tralee, actually, that there's a lot less going on in terms of Irish links with some of the other <laughs> So, um, So I kind of, I did my thing. You know, there were 20 of us. We were interviewed. We had a kind of, you know, bizarre, it was a bizarre evening. And then they announced I'd won it. And so uh, I was cancelling my trip to Japan and, and busy booking my uh, myself a, a place on the plane to go over to, to take part in the Rose of Tralee, which was the most unbelievable experience. And people who aren't Irish, how do you explain the Rose of Tralee to them? You know, it's just, it's impossible. And one of my best friends, um, her husband, Will Green, played for Leinster, and he, um, they, she was in a, a supermarket in Dublin one day, and she rang me up. And she's very English. She said. Gabby, I was in the supermarket and people were chatting about the Rose Tralee. I get it now. I <laughs> and, um, and so I just, I implore anybody who's ever in that part of the world at that time of year, got to go along and just see what goes on there. So This might be counterintuitive, but while you would think that it was um, of its time in the early 90s and it's somewhat antiquated, it, it just gets bigger and bigger. So it's, uh, you're part yeah. of a, a history that, that is still being told. 
Well, there was a big reunion last year, and I unfortunately I was doing some major athletics championships. I think it was well, I was doing the world last year, ironically, and I couldn't go. Um, but a quite a few of the girls who were there from the year that I was there, we still you know keep in touch via um, Twitter or you know various links, various weird and wonderful links. Like my sister knows the Las Vegas Rose really well. She lives in Las Vegas and um, sees her. So um, they, you know these are these are links that don't that don't die easily, mm-hmm. and um, and your experiences I think from there kind of last a lifetime. But um, yeah, it was a very um, it, I was young. I was like, I was just eighteen, you know. So I was at the younger end, should we say, of the of the age span. And I think I had I been a tiny bit older, I really would have gone for it, but a bit more competitive, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I was just soaking it all up. Your Welsh credentials are a little more solid, if that's the right way yes. of phrasing it. Your dad, Terry Arth, obviously one of the greatest players ever for the country, captain, manager, played for Leeds, Spurs, and others. And he was also he, he managed them back in 1993. And I bring that up because. They came incredibly close to qualifying for the 94 World Cup. And it's been much documented that this Euros is the first tournament they've been in since 1958. I guess you got to see one of those hard luck stories up close. Oh, my gosh, it was so painful. I mean, we, we'd we suffered a terrible tragedy as a family the year before in 92. My brother had died. And, um, you know, so it was a very hard time for us as a family. And I think we all felt that this would be some kind of, you know, joyous silver lining inside this terrible cloud that we were all experiencing. And and not that you can ever kind of, you know, there's no football and any sport, there's there's no divine right, is there, to, to be anywhere in any tournament or to, to lift any trophy. But it just felt like we, we would use some luck, you know. And um, Paul Bowden missed a penalty and um, and Wales didn't go through. And, you know, the, there was no one person you can put the, you know, shoulder all the blame. But it was um it was just such a, a narrow miss. And, I think we all felt that that, you know, that was, it was quite a pivotal moment in my dad's career, really, because I think he just lost a lot of belief and, you know, he felt very hard, hard done by and life was not, you know, wasn't particularly going the right way for him. So for all kinds of reasons, it's a memory that I don't dig back into or dip back into too often because it was, um, it was a horrible, horrible night there. And then England, of course, didn't qualify for that tournament either. So, you know, Wales would have been just, they'd have been able to kind of have a lot of the, you know, publicity and a lot of the attention themselves. So, yeah, very cruel. Sport can be cruel. For someone like your dad then, Gabby, what did he get out of the experience of watching his country do so well this summer? He's an incredibly emotional man, my dad, at the best of times. So um, he's just been absolutely loving it. But I know, you know, also quite teary about it. You know, he just he, he's one of those people that cries when he's happy. So he's um, he's been loving their success. He's absolutely a huge fan of Chris Coleman. And I know that they speak fairly regularly, actually. Um, he managed him at Swansea as a young player and um, and he's kept in touch with him and um even before qualifying you know they, they were in touch so um and very quietly so you know he wasn't kind of he just would ring him up and see how he was because I think until you've walked in those shoes you don't really know what it's like do you to be an international manager and to and to have that kind of pressure so um so he's yeah he's he's been so delighted for him and I think that the, the way Wales have played is one thing but the way they've behaved as well as this, this incredible tight unit and this you know really really great team to to support I think he's been so proud of that yeah we could see you were obviously as excited as as any Wales fan following this on Twitter and some of the responses were uh, casting uh, doubt on your Welsh credentials I wondered if being Welsh was actually a big deal for you when you're growing up was it a big part of your identity it's funny because now I've got kids who have never um who've never lived in Scotland and who uh, were born in England but tell me that they're Scottish from the minute they could speak. They t- and I kind of, you know, that's how I, I suppose I was. You know, when you have, um, 
maybe it's a strong Celtic identity, a parent who has a strong Celtic identity, you you grow up really feeling the the affinity with that, you know, and and like me, my kids, half their family live in Scotland. For me, half my family lived in Wales, you know, all my dad's family was still in Wales. So I spent a lot of time in Wales. We, you know, very close to my family and and obviously watching him play international sport because there are a few greater honours, are there, than representing your country at something. So um, when I got the choice myself, when I went to the Commonwealth Games, I, I chose Wales. Wales, you know, so um, yeah, so it has been quite funny. People go, oh, well, since when have you been Welsh? <laughs> um, so, um, so no, I, I, it's, it's. I think it's, it's a Celtic thing. I think there's a, there's, there's the history and there's the, um, the slight kind of, you know, I dare I say, chip on the shoulder, which we all, you know, slightly experience against the bigger neighbour, and it, it unifies and it gives you. Um, it's just a real sense of belonging. And I always felt that with my Welsh family that didn't quite, it didn't quite happen with the English family. I don't know why. And I'm, you know, and I think it would take um, a little longer than the discussion we have to kind of go into English identity. But yeah, I was always, I was always incredibly proud of that. Yeah, we might talk a little bit about English identity because I think a decent study could be done based on what happened over the four days alone during the Euros when firstly Brexit happened and then, even by the standards of England tournament failures, they flamed out in fairly spectacular circumstances. Uh, you were there. What were those few days like for you? It was just awful. I mean, what, what, being in France anyway during Brexit was was surreal because people kept looking at us. They'd either look at us with great sympathy, like, what have you done? Or um, they'd look a little bit suspicious of us that we were somehow, you know, we were deserting them. And um, and where we were staying in Chantilly, where England were based, was you know, it's a very small, affluent French town. And um, on one of the windows in one of the, I think it was boulangerie, they'd written bye-bye, B-Y-E, B-Y-E, not B-U-Y. And um, <laughs> we were like, oh, okay. Okay, thanks for that. And then we turned up at the match for, for the Iceland game, and there was definitely there was this there was a real there was a tension I felt in the um, in the corridor where the interviews take place with the the UEFA officials who were mainly French, and um, I think they looked upon us you know with a little bit of disdain really, and couldn't understand why we were we were so keen to leave them. And you were tra- kind of saying you know to colleagues from Germany and Holland who were also there ready to do interviews, you know, it's not it's not everybody feels the same way, and, and reasons are different. And you, but you you know they have their own. Um, uh, perception of why um, Great Britain has decided, United Kingdom has decided to, to do what it's done, and we had to um, kind of be in the thick of it, if you like. And then, of course, the football didn't help because there was a sense of Schadenfreude as well. I think where they just thought, "Well, this is what England deserves now." But um, as you say, England have managed to um, cock up spectacularly at major tournaments before, so the experience there was nothing new. But I think this time. It was, um, for me, out of the four tournaments that I've done this job, this was definitely the, the low point. Really? Just from a work point of view, from your experience of the whole thing? Well, the experience prior to going out, actually, the players had seemed genuinely quite um, a good unit. They'd seemed very relaxed. But the actual moment that night when Roy Hodgson resigned at press conference, the whole, you know, it would just felt, it felt like um, I was in I was in the middle of some weird movie script, you know, because you, you're waiting to do interviews and then somebody comes along and tells you the manager's resigned and um, and the players don't come out and then they do come out. And what do you say, you know, to, to a big strapping Joe Hart who's just, you know, who's just made a huge error on the pitch, who's gone out of a major tournament yet again, you know, it's just a horrible, horrible scenario to be in, a horrible situation to try and be professional in. And not because, you know, you feel particularly um, sad for them or you feel particularly um, close to them or anything. But, you know, they, people, I do think, forget sometimes that they, they are human and they, they don't want to go out at the last 16 stage and they, and they don't want to make mistakes. And, but you have, to, you have to ask some tough questions. The whole mood around it just seemed 
it seems to be the opposite of the Olympics in 2012, which yeah. I guess was a big moment in your career, I'm sure. I remember you had that brilliant highlight show every night, this real joyous kind of occasion, welcoming more and more Olympic medalists onto every the set. Day, yeah, yeah pr- pretty much every day. And I did say that when Brexit happened and that I said to my colleagues, a lot of whom you know, I'd worked with on the Olympics, I said, God, four years ago, we were just in this amazing bubble of of sporting bliss and and national happiness and everybody was getting on and and obviously Great Britain being the team that it is has people who are from Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland and you know and they all got on well and everybody was was you know going for the same cause and and London looked amazing and everybody in the world was envious and it just felt like a a whole different generation a whole different lifetime it's just four years ago how we can how we can go from that to you know to how we felt that week really seemed a bit clumsy <laughs> how could you lose that so quickly but um but yeah maybe you know maybe it wasn't as as deep rooted as we'd, we'd hoped and that joy that people seem to have chatting to each other on the tube and that is a cliche but it's true people were talking to each other in the streets and and wanted to talk about sport but they but they did it with such a pride i think in that the, the nation actually managed to pull this thing off because you know, Brits are pretty kind of down on themselves about, you know, oh, we're not very good at this. We don't do that. We're not very, you know, we're not very good at um, big events. And actually, oh, suddenly we, we can do this kind of thing. So um, I, I, I just hope that a good a good British performance in Rio will will help to kind of make people smile a little bit because it's, it's all been a bit down, hasn't it, in the last couple of months or so? Yeah, a little bit, I suppose. It was good for Wales for a while there and Ireland had their yeah, moments of the Euros. Sure. But what I remember about those 2012 games and the way you guys covered, there was, there was a real joy to it. And you're, you were on there. Claire Balding was brilliant, as she always is. Hazel Irvin, Sue Barker was on. There were a lot of uh, female, seemed to me, more female presenters than often you would see in sports broadcasting. Do you think that was a part of the success of the BBC's coverage of that event? I think it was just, you know, a really good crop of um, broadcasters who are knowledgeable, enthusiastic, um, have a great wealth of experience. It just adds up to a successful, you know, the successful coverage of overall. The sport takes centre stage, but then, you know, all the other stuff around it, I think it helped that we had a really experienced team. But actually, it's funny you should say that. It felt like there were a lot of women, and there were a lot of women. But ahead of this Olympics, um, Claire being Claire, we had our um, a launch, and she said, just in case anybody asks you, um, it's actually 70-30. So the men still dominate. And, <laughs> and um, she's so funny. You know, she's so head girl. She kind of checks all the facts beforehand. And actually, there were, there were a lot of men involved. But I think... Um, it was it was great that women were able to t- take some of the top shows, you know, hold some of the, some of the top spots, and and made it feel like it was it was being led by by female broadcasters. It shouldn't really be an issue, but it still is. You know, we've got at the moment here in the UK, obviously the the Conservative Party, the race to be the leader of the Conservative Party is two women, and you know, just to, the other day I was listening to a big debate about whether or not we should even still be talking about that, but we are, and um, so therefore there is obviously a need. Yeah, I mean, uh, for instance, I'd say in the case of football, the ratio is still a lot higher than 70, 30 yeah. male to female. Why do you think football kind of remains a little bit resistant? You, you don't see that happening in big football tournaments. You know, the World Cup and the Euros is still covered mainly by men. I think it's because um, the women's game is definitely growing. You know, there's no there's no doubt about that. And it's gaining in promise, prominence. And obviously the BBC covers, um, in the UK covers, uh, the women's leagues and the international game. And it's getting good audiences. But I think that is probably, the, the lag is probably to do with the women's game. Because I think you, to have parity, I always think that the sports that do very well in terms of male-female ratios on coverage on screen, both the sport and the presentation teams, are those sports where they compete on a level playing field. So athletic 
athletics, for example, you don't have people going, well, I'm not staying because it's only the women's 800. You know, they, they, they watch a whole athletics meet, whether it's the men's 100, the women's high jump, because they're competing next to each other. And um, Wimbledon or major tennis tournaments, you know, you have the men and women competing on the same course at the same time. And so I think those sports, you don't notice the blend of male-female broadcasters. I think with women's football being, it had it, you know, I mean, the history of women's football is very interesting in this country anyway, because the FA banned it for about 40 years from the end of the war up to the 60s. And so in that time, women didn't play football. So I think it's important for for a male audience, for some reason, they feel like they need to see that these women actually they're playing they know what they're doing and therefore you know they can now talk about it now this is not me saying that that's just kind of the perception that i get mm. from from male pundits and so there has been an integration of female pundits actually um itv um have used any aluko a lot and i think that will kind of help when you get former international women footballers sitting alongside male pundits that gives um, i think a real parity to, to the coverage did you find it hard to crack that world to crack the football world um I was really, I think I was very lucky that I had some good mentors and um, really good supporters. And uh, Brian Barwick was head of ITV, took me from Sky to ITV and put me on, on the ball and wanted to train me up to do uh, Champions League and, and to do, you know, be a standalone kind of uh, broadcast, not just, you know, doing the, the highlight shows to do the big matches. And so I had a very good supporter and, um, and I worked really hard doing all the rubbish shifts that you don't want to do. And, you know, for years doing all those things that the unseen stuff, you know, um, that, that you have to do. And I think, um, I think because of that, I, w- I, I didn't feel like I was constantly banging away a, a, a brick wall that was never going to, you know, come down. But I do know I made a documentary with BBC about women in football a couple of years ago, and I realised that I had it wasn't a smooth path, but I realised that I had you know quite um, quite a good journey to where I wanted to get to, and actually there's a lot of people who haven't had quite um, a smooth ride, should we say? And there's still a lot of work to do. Yeah, I, I watched that documentary, Gabby, and it was actually quite shocking. A lot of the abuse that people have taken verbal abuse, women not even allowed into press conferences or tunnels. I'm not saying oh, oh women, but these were the, some of the contributors yeah. you had. They'd explain some of their issues. Yeah. And one or two, at least one, maybe one or two of the, the contributors at the time made an interesting observation. They said, look, look, all we want to do is go in there, do our jobs and be treated as one of the lads. We just want to go in and, and not be seen as any different, which in a way actually almost seemed... Even that doesn't seem quite right that you would have to no. go in and not be a woman. You'd have to go in and be one of the lads to be accepted in that world. Well, it's funny because j- just a quote that I heard the other day about Margaret Thatcher was that people used to say she's the strongest man in that cabinet, as if that was a big compliment, you know, mm-hmm. that she, that they were comparing her to a man. And, and the idea that you have to lose you know, your femininity or become some kind of androgynous being to compete in that environment or to, you know, have it even be on the same playing field to me doesn't seem right. I don't want my daughter to think that she can't do whatever she wants to do. Funny enough, she's chosen a sport as well where men and women compete on the same uh, arena because she show jumps. And I find that really um, interesting when she'll go into the arena and then a 38-year-old man will go in after her, you know, and because um, she's competing in open age uh, groups and stuff. And I think that's really, um, I quite like it, you know, when she's 10 years old competing against a 38-year-old man. <laughs> but but having said that, like, you know, later on in the sport, it does seem men kind of, you know, seem to rise to the top a bit uh, a bit quicker. But I think it's really important that as, a, as role models, you know, to our daughters and our sons, it's really important boys, you know, see women holding positions of authority and um, power and, you know, working uh, alongside men in all kinds of, whether it's cabinet or whether it's the top of sports and sports administration. And it's not unusual, you know, because for them, it shouldn't be unusual. So, um, yeah, I, I, I just don't like the idea that you have to become a bloke 
to to compete in a, a man's world, whatever that is. Did that documentary have an impact, do you think? And I suppose I'm asking what the situation is now for a, a woman starting out in sports broadcasting, football broadcasting in particular, or even women working in football in general. Um, I hope so, because um, we did a lot of um, filming with uh, the women in football who um, have, have done really good things. And Jackie Oatley is one of the founders. And, you know, she was, um, I think it was an MBE she got for her work with that and Anna Kessel as well. And they have done a lot to, they've worked with sponsors, they've worked um, on projects within uh, women within administration and women running um football organizations whether that's actually running a football club like Karen Brady or helping to get projects off the ground and I think those those visible women in football definitely have um have increased since the documentary I mean we started the documentary and uh, the FA didn't have a woman on its board by the end of the documentary they did now I'm not saying that our our line of questioning had anything to do with that but it was quite interesting the timing you know that we <laughs> that we were saying to them you haven't got a woman on the board and by the time the, the, the documentary went out they did so um those women who've worked for the Women in Football Association, which is known as WIF, have done a lot, I think, in that time since the documentary to, um, to, to kind of keep pushing women in football. And the reason why I think football is important, and it's not because it's the be-all and end-all, it's not because it's the only sport in town. For me, football's a microcosm of society in many ways, and it's still the sport that holds the back pages in thrall. It still can get the front pages. You know, whether you like it or not, it's got the most money, it's got the most eyeballs. And I think it's important that it reflects the society that it lives in. So if football's allowed to be racist, homophobic and sexist, then what do we say, to, what are we saying about our society? Yeah, it's a fair point. If you're Liz, just joining us on Second Captain Sunday, we've been getting a great insight here into Gabby Logan's broadcasting career, but that's only part of the story. You can get your texts in, 51551, tweet us at Second Captains. Up next, we delve into this sporting life of Gabby Logan. Our very first guest in the show is one of the top sports broadcasters around, Gabby Logan. That was just a little taste of the Welsh oh, adventure. You like that, Gabby? Oh, it's made me smile a lot. <laughs> that was such an amazing night, wasn't it? It's so brilliant. Well, it's made me, it's actually made me... Not just it, you, on. I think this is a... This, this happened to a lot of people. What, I'm, what you think, I think you know where I'm getting at here, Murph. Yeah. Robbie Savage. <laughs> Uh, and me and you and many other people enjoying his punditry work. Oh, yeah. Well, I say punditry. I think it was actually just mostly the co-commentary uh, because the one thing he did manage to do far better than I've ever heard him do ever before is try and communicate the level of excitement that he was feeling throughout those Wales games. And you have to say he did that blooming well, on Robbie Savage, your colleague, wouldn't be everybody's cup of tea. Hasn't always been my cup of tea. Bit but I, bit <laughs> yeah. I love him now. I, I, I just, he was, he's been superb on Wales throughout the tournament. Yeah, he's been great. I think that, the, the, you know, when you, I, the enthusiasm and the lack of cynicism has been so refreshing, hasn't yeah. it? And he's just been great. This is the part of the programme where we go deep into the genesis of our, our guest's sporting passion. And it's probably not hard to see where yours came from, I guess, with your dad, uh, who we've touched on playing professional football. He, he got into management immediately after retiring, as far as I know. So were you close to his job? Were you around professional yeah. football a lot? Yeah, Yeah. well, every week when he played, we would go and watch all the home games, whoever he was with. So people always say to me, oh, how come you're a Newcastle fan? Well, when you're a kid who goes for a few years to watch Coventry City, a couple of years to watch Spurs, a few years to watch Vancouver Whitecaps, then goes to Bradford City, then goes to Swansea, you know, you, you have a very mixed football uh, genetic makeup. And so we just followed him. And then I had my own sporting life as a gymnast. So Saturdays often became my my day, you know, where I was competing. So I, I just followed wherever he was. And when he went to Wales, that meant that we didn't have that many matches to go to, you know, as an international manager. And that was the time I went to university just after that. And so 
Um, so I then, you know, kind of became a Newcastle fan by virtue of the fact that I was I was going there every week. So when I was a kid, we were just around football all the time. And I remember you say he went straight from playing to managing. I remember my mum saying they'd had this heated conversation and I came in the kitchen. I must have been about nine, eight or nine. And she said, oh, we're just discussing your dad. Your dad wants to go into management. And in my head, I must have been a bit young, maybe seven. I thought she meant he wanted to be a referee and I just burst into tears. <laughs> and I, she's like, what's wrong? He's going to get abused every week. And, and she's like, well, maybe. And she still didn't know why I was so upset. You know, and I went off and cried on my pillow thinking, oh, God, this is a terrible career choice. What is he doing? So how did you go get into gymnastics then? Um, I just always did loads of sport. And when we lived in Vancouver, when he played Vancouver Whitecaps, I, I really liked gymnastics a lot. But I wanted to be a tennis player more than anything in the world. That's all I wanted to do. I played a lot of tennis. I was going to be the next Tracy Austin. She was my hero at the time. And I came back and we lived in Coventry for a while while he was looking for a job. And we had a flat in Coventry because we'd rented our house out. And there was a pebble dash wall. And that was my tennis machine. I just used to go hit against it for an hour a day. And then I play twice a week in a sports centre. And then we moved to Leeds and there was no indoor tennis court. So instead, I followed my sister to gymnastics because I couldn't play tennis. It was wintertime. And, you know, like, I don't know if you've read Matthew, Sy- uh, Matthew Syed's Bounce yeah. book. And I, I, really, I really, that chapter about location, I thought, like, that's why I'm not a tennis player, because I moved to Leeds in the middle of winter. You know? <laughs> and um, I became instead uh, a gymnast and kind of, just, you know, tennis fell by the wayside. So I think um, the opportunity um, wasn't there to do what I really wanted to do. But I, I had a bit, you know, a bit of skill, a bit of talent in what I did end up doing. Not, not enough to kind of fully realise my dreams, but it wasn't bad. Well, you got to the Commonwealth Games, which isn't bad, uh, Gabby, but the, the gymnastics, like the level of commitment required to be a gymnast, even as an eight or nine year old, it asks such massive questions of you training before school, training after school, yeah. you seven, eight hours. Like, where do you get the drive to do that? I don't know. I think it really it really suited my personality because I really like the idea that um, I could train really hard and see results and I, I could see that the people who trained harder got results and so it, I don't know it, I had that kind of personality that wanted to tick off the hours and go I can do 30 hours this week and I'll see I'll see a real difference and I'll see an improvement in my performance and um, I mean, you could say that to about any sport but gymnastics is quite a, a useful and it's a you know it's a young sport to be quite intensive at and especially girls gymnastics men t- have seem to have longer careers because they develop their muscles and their strength later so um so I I, I had I think my drive probably came from my dad sporting wise because I could see how hard he worked and I could see how much it took to to get good but I also had a sister 11 months younger than me who was doing it so there was great sibling rivalry going on and I had a brother who was a very talented footballer so we were all just putting in so many hours to to our sport and you know what it's like when you you know when your kids and people around you are doing it it's just what you do and I loved it with an absolute passion as well nobody ever had to force me to do it so that helped. What was your parents approach Gabby? I mean some parents are I suppose you got, you know, the kind of Earl Woods uh, kind of approach, which is to be quite demanding and critical. Uh, and then others kind of take the attitude, well, you know, as long as they're having fun, I don't really mind. What, what were your parents like? Well, it's funny, you know, because I had this conversation with a lot of my girlfriends who were gymnasts about our children now and how much we should or shouldn't be pushing them. And my mum's approach was, what time do you want dropping off? What time do you want picking up? You know, she was totally, she, she was Mrs. Taxi. That was her role. She, you know, self-confessed taxi driver for four kids running them around my dad was busy doing his own you know sporting life as long as we didn't waste anybody's time that was his kind of how do you uh, mean mean waste someone's time 
don't go into a gym and not do what, you know, if you're being coached, give respect to the coach and put everything in and don't waste your own time. Don't waste their time. So I suppose that is quite a serious um, approach to it. You know, he had a very professional approach to it in the sense that first of all, he couldn't understand why I was doing a sport where I wasn't going to make loads of money. He thought that was a bit strange, you know, so not that he was making loads of money, but he thought that sport, because for him, sport was a way out of um, a council house in Cardiff, you know, and it was a way out of a life where he, you know, he potentially couldn't see how he was going to not repeat, you know, do the same kind of jobs, very hard labor jobs as his family had done. So for him, sport was a way out. And so he couldn't understand why you just do sport for the love of sport, you know, <laughs> because it, you know, as much as he loves sport, he could only see a professional career and gymnasts don't make money. So um, if you're going to do it, you put your effort into it and you do the best you can. That was his approach. And so I have always kind of felt that, you know, that kind of is not a bad way to, to, to approach anything that you do, is it? You know, that you, you just want to do the best you can. And if that leads you to success and you enjoy it, then that's great. But when I now with my own kids, I've, I do, my, my, one of my girlfriends is, is absolutely adamant that we should be like Andre Agassi's dad, you know, and we're, doing, <laughs> we're doing it really badly wrong and we should be really pushing them. But it's got to come, I just do believe it's got to come from, at some point, your own motivation has got to take over and your own um, drive. You, you can't have that external pressure all the time well I guess yeah I mean the household that your kids are growing up in there's you and there's Kenny Logan your husband uh, if people aren't aware you're married to the former Scottish Rugby International so sport is there in a, in a big way but you feel that the two of you give the kids enough room to to breathe in a sporting sense yeah I think they've I, my, my daughter is, is really driven at the moment. She really wants to do her sport. She loves it. And, you know, she's she's really passionate about it. And, and that's all I could, I said to, you know, Kenny, all you want is for them to have a passion in something, whether it's music, the arts or sport. And she's really passionate. My son wants to do everything all the time. He wants to do any sport going. He loves his rugby, but I think mainly because it gets him out of academic um, work so if he can if he can represent the school um, at taekwondo he'd do it you know even if he'd never done it before so he doesn't can miss an afternoon of maths and and I and I, I just love the fact that he loves doing it and I think sport gives you so much um, so many other life skills that you know whether it's being able to juggle your time to be organised social skills learning to lose is so important you know because I think kids today aren't necessarily as, as good at that as as, uh, as we were as kids you know they, they they're told that you know they it's okay you know to, winnings you know everybody's winning everybody's a winner it's, it's good everybody's a winner and I don't go with that at all and if my kids school had one of those non-competitive sports days then I'd definitely be, I'd be removing them <laughs> this is our day in the year for goodness sake this is one day the Logan's day to shine <laughs> I always say to the other mums look you've got like grade 8 pianists and you win all the academic cups just let us have this one thing. okay uh, we haven't even we've only barely asked you about the Commonwealth Games we've mentioned it but that was a staggering achievement in sport to be at that level in uh, it was in New Zealand, I think, in 1990. How did you get on? Yeah, not bad. I just missed out on pretty much on all the individual finals. I think it was first reserve for two, and that, my aim was finals. But do you know, going back to life experiences, it was a, it was just a really brilliant thing to be able to do and to take part in. It's such a friendly game, the Commonwealth, and I love the multi-sport. I, you know, I still work with people I met. You know, Colin Jackson was in the Welsh team that I was in, and I work with him. And and so that in terms of you know meeting some incredible sports people and and being inspired by them. And I came back, and not long after that, I got I had quite a bad back, and it was clear. I wasn't going to really be able to go on much longer and so I thought I'd change sports and I was going to choose another sport and I used to because I'd met some swimmers I'd watch the World Swimming Championships and then go down to the local sports centre
children and see if I could match their times with great naivety. You know, that, that, is that going to be my sport? No. Okay, I'll be a runner. No, I'm not going to be a runner. And so I was, I was absolutely desperate to keep on in that elite sporting environment. But, um, but unfortunately, these are the days before sports identification came along, because I'm pretty sure um, if it was now that, you know, the British Gymnastics Association would say that we've got this gymnast retiring, but she's quite good at this, this and this. Why don't you, you know, use her in your sport? Because you see that all the time, the likes of Helen Glover, you know, the um, Olympic gold medal rower. She was just excellent at loads of sports and British rowing came and snapped her up when she was 17. So, um, yeah, I, I did have a feeling for a few years that I was I was never going to achieve such, you know, feel so good about something as I did about that sporting environment. Okay, amazing chatting to you this morning. And uh, I don't think many people can segue quite so seamlessly between a sporting career and then life as a broadcaster. But who am I to judge? The only way to do this is to put a definitive number on it. It's all been building up to this this morning. Let us now rank this sporting life of Gabby Logan. You don't understand. I could have had class. We don't have stars in this game, Mrs. Weaver. What do you have then? People like me. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. So, uh, right out of the gate, Gabby, you have uh, blown this entire slot wide open because this is supposed to be the part of the show where we praise and pillory in equal measure the pathetic sporting achievements of our otherwise garlanded celebrity guests. Oh, wow, you were first sub on your school football team, half a ton of points. Well, unfortunately, you've obviously competed at the Commonwealth Games, so you're getting deducted points for being an actual sports... That might seem a little harsh, uh, maybe even counterintuitive, but that's just the way it is. So the uh, three categories are your sporting highlight, your sports knowledge and your overall sporting ability. So uh, sporting highlight is competing at the Commonwealth Games. So I'm going to give you 95 marks, not 100 because, you know, it's not the Olympics, <laughs> minus 20 marks for fairness's sake. So this is an Irish solution. Uh, How many marks are you taking away? Uh, 20 this marks. This makes so little sense. You've, Owen, just you you, you literally it. torpedoed I'm, the credibility I'm, of this slot. I'm begging right you to, to just roll with this. Current sporting knowledge, uh, well, <laughs> presenter of matches today, presenter of the Olympic Games on the world's biggest television corporation. So I'm going to say reasonably high. Uh, uh, 97 points how about okay and overall sporting ability I'm going to deduct points I'm just looking for reasons to deduct points but you're, I'm going to deduct points because you can't play hurling you can't actually play hurling can you no. actually don't, don't answer that don't answer that let's just give you 92 points and be done with it so like a primary school teacher who tires of giving their best people A pluses all the time I'm giving you an overall score of 88 points with the only marks being deducted for being a little too good at things it's like that time on Strictly Come Dancing when you were voted off for being able to dance <laughs> oh, I can't believe you got to this stage of the interview before you brought up Strictly you know how many years of therapy it's taken <laughs> and the fact that if Kenny Logan was in earshot right now that he genuinely thinks he's to this day that he's a better dancer than me that it pains me I saw him described as having the movement of a vacuum cleaner (laughs) (laughs) but obviously not a Dyson because they're quite elegant yes Um, it's one of the cheaper brands yeah Tesco's own or something well listen Gabby you're in a pole position to become Ireland's greatest ever non-sports person sports person Uh, it's been absolutely great to chat this morning thanks so much let's hear it for Gabby Logan thank you for having me it's been really lovely chatting have a great day thanks Gabby